Okay. Uh, so start us off to uh, introduce yourself and just tell us, tell everyone kind of where you've, what you've done, where you've been. <laughs> what I've done and where I've been. Yeah. Okay. Well, my name, my name is Tom Collins. Currently, I'm an assistant professor at Washington State University. And I do a research program on aroma and flavor chemistry in grapes, wines, distilled spirits, things like that. I teach in the uh, undergraduate and graduate program for wine science. So I teach courses on wine chemistry, um, winery operations, things like that. Um, my background, I was in the, in the U.S. Navy for, for almost five years from May of 1984 through uh, December of 1988. So I came in through the Navy ROTC program. I was in the ROTC unit at Cornell University, uh, where I got a bachelor's degree in Russian and Soviet studies and wow. Russian language. And Fun. Uh, had, had initially, I think, plans to go into the intelligence community, but uh, that didn't work out. Yeah. But I was a surface warfare officer, was stationed on USS Capadano. Uh, FF-1093, so an class frigate, for about three and a half years. And then I finished up my time in the service on the USS Kitty Hawk. Um, oh, no kidding. My, so my father-in-law was on the Kitty Hawk for a long time. Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was there 87, 87 and 88. I got out at the end of 1988, and that's when we moved to California so I could uh, study winemaking at UC Davis. How, so that's the curious thing, right? Like nothing about your initial education or your career in the Navy, like in the eighties, like going through Russian studies, that was probably a thing, right? The cold war, the whole deal. Well, yeah. I feel yeah. like, you know, um, man, all the things that I love, like I watch all these cool movies that people make now. Like that was, it's like, you're, you're like a cold warrior, right? I don't understand how people go from that to why, like, <laughs> you know, and even now, even with Melissa, like it doesn't, that it doesn't, necessarily makes sense like melissa was out like <coughs> investigating traffic accidents right and now now sure. it's like wine science like how where is where does it how does that happen how do people do that well so in my case it comes from my choice of school i was at cornell university which is in the finger lakes in new york yeah which is a, you know as you know it's a big wine region for the east coast and yeah. so i kind of got hooked on wine before i went into the navy i mean okay. i was I was there on Navy ROTC scholarship, but still, you know, I, I got hooked on wine first, Yeah. then did my stint in the service and went back to wine. And I got to say, there's no sense to the things that I did in the military either. I came out of, I came out of Corn Intelligence Community, and so they... The Navy said, well, we're good there, but we need surface warfare officers. We need somebody to drive these ships. Yeah. So then, so then they sent me to steam plant propulsion uh, school for six months. And I get to the ship after finishing all of that training. And ship says, well, we don't need any more engineers. <laughs> we've got all the, we've got, <laughs> we've got all the engineers we need. What we need is a, is a gunnery officer. So then I spent another two and a half months going through all the schools related to gunnery officer. Wow. Sounds so, about right for the military. 
Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah it's just like needs of the military, right? It's just, it's ridiculous. Like how that happens though. Mm-hmm. But somewhere along the line, somebody should have said, well, that ship just got two new engineers. They don't need another one. Yeah. And we send mm-hmm. him somewhere that is shorthanded. Right. Because probably there was somebody who went through gunnery officer school that went to a ship that needed engineers. <laughs> it's like they never, they just seem to never think that through. That's yeah. I feel like manpower is a little bit um, yeah. like it's in hindsight. hindsight. Yeah. It's really, uh, I mean, I never figured it out. I never got it, you know. Um, inter- cool skills, cool skills to gain, but yeah, it's it's crazy like how that works. Yeah, well, and of course these days they pretty much have gone away completely from steam propulsion. It's all gas turbines and things right. like that. So it's an obsolete skill set in the U.S. Navy now. But so I actually like it was fun that you when we were texting about this. I think before. Melissa's season started and everything. Um, it was interesting. You were telling me like you, you're like, are you actually from New York or is that just where you went to school? I can't, I can't exactly remember. That's, that's where I went to school, but I also lived there for four or five years after I went long story. After I got out of the Navy, I moved to California, learned, learned to be a winemaker, vineyard management, things like that. Then went back to New York and worked in the wine industry in the Finger Lakes for five years before I went back to California to work in the industry there. Yeah, because you were saying that you know you you know like some of the towns like where I grew up. Like I was actually oh, yeah. I was recruited out of Fredonia. Um, yep. I didn't live in Fredonia, but I mean it was just it's just such a small world, you know. It but, is. I I I was in Fredonia, Dunkirk, that South Shore Lake Erie yeah. region f- at least once a week for all the time that I lived and worked in New York. So I was I was actually telling my wife like we that's a that was, when we lived in Virginia that was a common place for us to drive through, and I always admired all the grape fields and all the different th- things that were going out there. But to be honest, like it never it never even occurred to me that that was like a, a wine region. Like I you know I just I don't even know what I would yeah. what I would think when I was just there. Like I just grew up with it, and and you don't when you live in a place you don't exactly um, appreciate it for what it's actually doing. It's just sort of a thing, right? Like. Yeah, it's, and now looking yeah. back on it, yeah. I'm like, man, I wish I knew a little bit more about. Yeah, the things that make any region special are right. often largely lost on the people who live there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I, yeah, you know, I just until I, you come in from some other somewhere else and see what's going on, that you appreciate it for sure. I think New York is definitely a place like that. Like my wife is like, we got to go to Niagara Falls. I'm like, why? You know, like what for? <laughs> I've just, I've just been there. It's just a place that, you know, cause it's like when you have access to things, you don't look at it. Like, you know, my wife grew up in Japan. So like they, they hear of these places, like it's a, you know, it's a big deal for her. So we go back almost every time and I'm like, all right, cool. Yeah. We're back again. It's just, yeah, it's interesting. Like people, other people's perspective on things. Um, I'm really starting to appreciate them, especially when they're, they're close to me like that, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's a beautiful area. It is. The South shore. I mean, it's just, it's just gorgeous. Maybe not quite so gorgeous in the wintertime. Sure. Uh, it's yeah. a little rough, which but, that's the other interesting thing to me is like, you got to have a condensed growing season, right? Up there. Like, is yeah. it tricky to, I'm sure it can't be quite like what you can get out West. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, I guess that's where your guys expertise comes in, right? Like, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I mean it's. I mean the winter cold there is a real limiting factor, and that that area tends to be more conquered in Niagara just because it's just enough colder than the Finger Lakes that 
um, vinifera, the classic wine grape varieties, don't do quite as well. Mm. Um, so it does, I mean, it's still largely a juice grape industry along that part of the state, but there are definitely okay. people making wine there too. Yeah. What's, uh, so you've, you're, you're a winemaker too, right? And you've done spirits. So like you do both or what, or you have uh, done both like. So I, I mean, before I came to WSU in 2015, I was briefly at UC Davis in a academic position there. And before that I was in the wine industry. I worked as a winemaker at Lang Twins Winery in uh, near Lodi, California, just south of Sacramento. Okay. Did that for a couple of years. I worked, I've worked on both the vineyard side and the winery side, ran the research department for Behringer for uh, close to 10 years. So a little bit of everything. And that all that background is invaluable to me now yeah. teaching because I've had experience on both sides of the industry and have something to say to students, no matter what the question is just about as Melissa, I'm sure would attest. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so maybe I'm naive. I don't know. Melissa's opened my eyes to this whole industry and like, I don't, I don't consume a lot of wine. I mean, I have relatives that do, um, but I, I love the idea of, um, I mean, I just think people love these things so much. It's just so cool to hear about the story behind it, right? Like, um, we're very much like a coffee culture, a wine culture, a whiskey culture, a beer culture. Like, but I don't, I don't think we appreciate like what it takes to what goes into it. Yeah, to get these things in a bottle and get them in your right. hands. You know, like I don't. Yeah. Yeah. I, again, call me naive, but I, it's just really opened my eyes like to this whole thing and man, there's just so, so many steps, right? Like to, to get all this done. And, and I had no idea. I thought this was like a trade that you just sort of uh, fall in on, right? Like passed down from generation to generation. I'm sure there's places that are still like that. Had no idea that there would be a professor of wine science or any, you know, any of these things. I mean, it's, it's, it's just such <laughs> no, it, a cool thing. It definitely runs the gamut. I mean, the, the winery that Melissa works at is a family winery that what three generations. Yep. Um, and there are other examples, Lang Twins that I worked at, um, they'd been growing grapes for three or four generations. So there are definitely examples where it's something you grow up with and it's what you do. Yeah. Um, but on the other end of the scale, it's, it can be just a commodity and not necessarily much different from, you know, making Budweiser or Tropicana orange juice. I mean, it's big scale commodity products that, every day has to, it has to be the same as what you bottled the day before. Yeah. So. That's the part that I think I feel like as a consumer has to be the hardest, um, to the consistency because there's this, yeah. what I, what I know about like the, the spirits or the whiskey is like, you, you know, your grain bills matter, your water absolutely matters. Like all these things matter and it can all change, um, the flavors that you get. And, and then, you know, the notes that you can pick up. I mean, for someone who knows what they're looking for, right, or can taste it. I mean, like, it's a skill, though, to learn it. But, yeah, the consistency, I just feel like it has to be one of the hardest things to do. I don't – I think that's what people should appreciate the most when they, like, consume a glass of whatever it is they're consuming. Um, I, th I think that's especially true on the wine side because you get one shot each year to get the process going. The grapes come right. in the fall, and you get your best shot. You do what you can with it, and the rest of it is just trying to figure out what to do with with what you've produced in that year. It's a little different if you're doing beer or 
uh, spirits because they do fermentations every day year round. They do yeah. distillations every day. And especially on the whiskey side, then it, you know, they do the distillation, then it goes and sits in a barrel for three or four or 10 or 12 years. And there the real skill is blending. Right. So you've, you've got a whole, a whole rick house full of barrels to choose from, and you want to try and make a product that's consistent with the last one you turned out. Um, so those guys are really good at blending and being, you know, being spot on in what they're tasting. Right. I would say, especially, I think what, from what I learned, especially overseas, like the, the Scottish islands or the, the, the British islands where they, they're making these Scotch whiskeys, they're very much blended. Um, yeah. I don't, I, I don't re- recall, like I said, I'm a Jack Daniels guy. I don't recall yeah. them talking about blending much. Um, but yeah, that's, that's a whole other skill in and of itself. I mean, it's fascinating. You don't, you don't blend wines, do you? Is there a same, is there a process for blending wines? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. No? yeah blend, wine, blending in on the wine side is a, is a big deal too, because there are not very many grape varieties and even fewer places where one variety in one place is going to produce everything you want in terms of fruit aromas okay. and tannin structure and all the characteristics you're looking for. So more often than not, it's a blend and it may be predominantly Cabernet or Merlot, but there's all these, in many cases, there's just going to be a little bit of this and a little bit of that just to tweak it the way you want it to be. And it's yeah. 2% here, a 1% here, like those small little increments. Yeah. Sometimes it could be like 15%, depending on what the blend is. Um, one thing about wine is too, is that when you're blending, everything is technically a blend because you're taking a lot of grapes and then eventually it goes through fermentation. It has a certain yeast, whatever you're doing, but then you're putting into barrels and whether or not you have neutral barrels or you have new barrels that you're putting it in. And then eventually, you know, you're tasting from those barrels and you're like, Oh wow, these barrels are just like badass. These are amazing. Okay. I want this to be, you know, like the backbone. And then you're looking at something that's going to make it a little bit softer not so tannic where it's like hitting you in the face. So then you're going to look at these neutral barrels maybe, and then you're going to blend those in. So if you have a hundred barrels of something, it doesn't necessarily mean that hundred barrels are going to go to bottle exactly how they are. They're going to get blended and like smooth. And that's why the most winemakers, if you're having a bottle of wine, you know, they have to be really good at blending and it's not necessarily just, you know, the grapes itself. It could be, you know, vineyard, like this is a hundred percent cab from this one vineyard. And then you take that and it goes into, you know, 20 barrels. Well, five might be, you know, brand new, but then there's all different coopers and then all these other neutral barrels that you're sourcing from. Cause you know, that's a very tannic, you know, wine. Well, like I said, I mean, I still started. What did you, <laughs> what's that? What's that? I was just saying to Melissa, you didn't know there was all that involved when you first got involved in this, did you? No. And in fact, my boss, my winemaker is texting me about putting up trials for some wines tomorrow. Yeah. So I did. That's the thing is like, how many, I don't know. I just come across so many people. Oh, I love wine. Oh, cool. Cool. You love wine, but they don't, I don't like I said, I don't think most people, bother to learn about the products that they love right like so i i got on a whiskey kick and i just i I learned um i've been to the distillery i think that was a huge motivator for me just to watch the the personal touch and this is like this is a these are very personal industries where a lot of things these days just aren't 
Um, so I've always been, I've always wanted to learn about it. And then obviously, um, when Melissa and I reconnected on this podcast and we've talked about her profession and what she's doing now, I mean, it's just opened a whole nother door. Like, uh, I don't, I don't drink a lot of wine. My wife does. I consume a lot of steak. I'd love to have a wine with it someday. Um, but I need to be educated by someone like to go actually taste it with someone who knows what they're talking about. Like I went on a whiskey tasting at the distillery and it changed my whole perspective. Um, when someone can tell you kind of what to look for, like it's very, it's a very, uh, opening experience. Like otherwise you're just slamming whiskey. Like what's the point? You know, you're not even really, uh, tasting it. Like you don't even right. know what's going on and wine, wine, I think, you know, obviously different profiles, but very much the same. Um, yeah, it's just fascinating that there's like an actual education to this stuff. Like, you know, um, I don't know. Well, I mean, on the winemaking side, it covers a whole lot of different scientific dis- disciplines from microbiology. Yeah. You know, Melissa talked about different barrels and different vineyards, but, you know, in any, you know, if you're making wine from a single lot of grapes, there's a reasonable likelihood you're probably using at least one or two different yeast strains as well. And they're going to have an impact on what the wine, how the wine turns out. Right. Um, then you get into everything that goes on with wood and wood chemistry. Um, it, I mean, there, there are just so many things to it. And, and that's just on the winemaking side. When you get back to what's happening in the vineyard, then it comes down to things like soil chemistry, understanding what's going on in the soil, the soil, soil, microbes, irrigation, water relations, grapevine physiology. It just goes on and on and on. And probably Bernie told you that when you had your chat with her. Yeah, that was fun. So it was a whole nother uh, perspective, right? Like we're we're sort of crossing the whole uh, spectrum of, you know, or maybe not the whole spectrum, but um, just like all these different disciplines that people do. And again, it's just like, holy cow, like this is crazy, you know? what does a what does a wine barrel house like look like? Like I've been in a whiskey barrel house and they stack those suckers high, so I know the higher they go, the more interaction they get with the heat, right? And right. it pushes the whiskey in and out of the barrel. Is that the same for wine? Like how high up does wine go, or do you keep it low? Like what's the deal with that? Wine, I I think cellars. I always think cellars. Like I always think you want to be in a cooler place. I don't know what what about when it's when you're aging it or whatever. It's a different world than, than for whiskey, that's for sure. Okay. You're not going to see the eight-story high barrel warehouses the way you will if you go to Kentucky. Um, and the general consensus is to try and keep things relatively stable and not have the temperature fluctuations if you can avoid them. Yeah. Um, more humidity controlled. Um, so it's a, it's a different world. Um, the whiskey guys make a big deal and it does matter. The conditions that you age the spirit in are going to affect for sure the character of that spirit, how long it's going to age. So for them, it's, it's a key part of their blending strategy is to have barrels that were aging under different conditions because they can't really differentiate that much on the basis of mash bill because they don't have that much variation there. Right. And so for distilled spirits, in many ways, the barrel is a key that cask and how it's how it's used is a key part of how they differentiate their products. On the wine side, there is a lot more variation in grape variety and location and, and what you're doing in the winemaking side. And the barrel is, is more of a complement rather than a driving force in the character. Well. And so it doesn't necessarily play the same leading role that it does in whiskey or 
other spirits. Yeah, like I said, I've said, mentioned a couple of times, I'm a Jack Daniels guy, and they have to use, it's state law. They have to use a fresh barrel every time. What I found interesting is they send those barrels, they use those barrels for everything. Like they're very much like a, a zero waste type of company or try to be, uh, yep. but they ship those barrels overseas. So like you'll see like a, a Scottish, uh, you know, distilleries buying up these barrels or then you'll see, I think they, they are very interested in a lot of the wine barrels too. And they look for uh, like the cask mates. So like you had the wine, you pull the wine out and then you put the whiskey in and let it, I've never tried any of that, but I mean, it's like when the two worlds come together, it's just like, it's so cool to me. I just, I don't know. I just, well, so yeah, they, that's right. The, the bourbon industry, the uh, Tennessee whiskey, those, those industries have to use new barrels. They can use them one time and then they can't use them again to make, right. bourbon or to make Tennessee whiskey. And I, I've looked a little bit into the history of that law and I think if you get to the bottom of it, there's probably a Scottish whiskey maker behind it. <laughs> I mean, I would think. Because it's a great source for them for right. used inexpensive barrels. Right. Right. So, um, it, I mean, it, this, a lot of Scotch whiskey used to be aged primarily in sherry casks because there was a big trade between that, that part of Spain and England. Sherry was a big beverage there. And it didn't make sense to take, take the cast back to Spain empty. So they just got rid of them by selling them to whiskey makers to use. Right. For right. And the bourbon story, bourbon barrels have largely replaced sherry barrels for right. aging Scotch whiskeys for the same reason. There's a, there's always a huge supply of used barrels right. from the bourbon industry. So I'm pretty sure there was a Scottish distiller that was behind that. Oh yeah, I mean, there's a, you know, follow the money, right? You can whatever you can, whenever you can follow the money, you're going to learn a lot of things. But um, yeah. listen, weren't you saying so? You, like, weren't you talking about smoke, right? Like, and how that affects? Is that something you study? Um, well, it, actually, Dr. Collins, Tom is probably one of the is the leading smoke exposure smoke researcher exposure. out there right now. Yep. So. What ha- like what happens like is there ever going to be like some ultra exclusive like smoked out bottle of wine kind of thing or does it damage it like can we get a good flavor from it or can or we don't know yet or does it kill him? Yeah, no, it's it's not good. It's no? not good. No. no. Smoke is like a a thing in my life, right? Like I'm in Utah and you guys smoke us out constantly. Let alone <laughs> <laughs> like where California does, I think out of Washington, I'm not really sure that we've ever seen much from Washington. California's terrible. Oregon was bad and Idaho. I know you guys have fires. I'm just not sure if your smoke comes down to us, but we have our own fires too. And like right. in the summer, like smoke is a, is a part of my life. Uh, so when you told me that it can, it can really mess with the grapes. Like I sort of perked up a little bit. So, I mean, that could destroy a whole crop, right? Like, couldn't it, could it ruin the whole thing or what? It can it's it's not common that you're going to have a big enough smoke exposure that it's going to affect an entire state or or the entire west coast this year has been a pretty severe year for fires and smoke exposure on the west coast and (laughs) more damage than you would expect to see in a normal year for sure right um and as far as smoke goes i think washington we prefer to send our smoke to british columbia and smoke them out so oh, does it go okay so yeah that makes sense it goes up yeah yeah well i'll tell you what our valley will fill right up after you know you'll hear about a fire in california a couple days later our whole valley will be covered and then usually it, it starts starts to kind of 
coalesce with our own fires because i mean we're not immune to fires sure. we, don't, we i mean utah tends to manage lands as best they can but i mean there's a lot of it same with california and everywhere else so we're gonna you're gonna get fires but um yeah it's interesting like so what i mean what exactly happened like to the, these the grapes and the vines like obviously they're exposed to it i mean does it, what ha- what happens like so so if there if there's if there's smoke in the in the vineyard um, for, and it, you know, how long it takes depends on the density of the smoke, how much smoke there is, yeah. how long it's around, where the, where the fire is relative to the vineyard. So the closer the fire, generally the more severe the outcome. Right. But the plants, the plants take up the smoke. They absorb some of the, some of the smoky smelling compounds from the smoke. And, um, at least in grapes, those, those compounds ended up primarily in the grape skins. Mm. And then when Melissa takes those and crushes them to make red wine, you have to ferment the juice with the skins to get the color from the skins. Well, you're also getting all of these smoke-related compounds as well. And it's not, generally speaking, pleasant smoky aromas. It's more cigarette smoke, cigar. But Electrical tape, burning rubber. So is that... Is that fuels related? Like what is actually burning or is that? So, I mean, like if, if you burned like a natural field, I'm sure you'd have a different profile than if a town got burned, right? Because of all the weird things we put inside homes, is that kind of a fair? Yeah, I, I, that's something that we've started to realize more in the last two or three years oh. that the character of the smoke is different when it's at, when it involves burning buildings and things like that or to forest fires. Um, but there's a there's a difference in the character of the smoke if you're having a forest fire that's mostly, um, you know, Douglas fir, western yeah. red cedar, things like that. That gives different smoke than if you've got a rangeland fire burning the kinds of things that we see around here, you know, sage, cheatgrass, and sage and rabbit. That's what burns up here, yeah. Yeah. See, that's I mean, burn it makes a more intense smoke. Right. That's that's I mean that's wild to me. Especially because like that area, the West Coast is not been good lately, right? So it produces like a lot of wines. There's obviously all up and down the coast, and it's all it's. I mean, it's it's got to be. I would say almost every year it's subjected to smoke. Is that fair? I mean, most of it. I, I there's there are wildfires every year up and down the coast, and I'd say since 2015 at least there have been smoke affected vineyards somewhere on the west coast right sometimes it's british columbia sometimes it's california it's up and down the coast so i mean what kind of impact has this had on the industry then i mean i, I would think the west coast that area has got to produce a lot of um, at least america's wine right and maybe where i don't know what the yeah, percentage would be but it's got to be pretty pretty good amount so yeah, california is 90 percent of the u.s industry we're next Washington second. Uh, so I mean, it's it, so this these wildfires. It's got to have a big impact on the at least in America the industry. Then right, it it does. Although in any given year, it's unusual that it's going to be a you know the whole state that's affected. It's more common that it's going to be a region, a vineyard okay. region here or there. So there'll be other places in any any almost every almost every year there'll be areas that that are unaffected and make the wines they would normally make, but they'll always there, at least for the last five years, there have been places here and there where 
where the problem exists. And in some of those years, those areas may have a difficult time making wines yeah. that they can sell. So what? There'll, there'll be instances where, where vineyards are in that area, but still make good, make good wines. It's, it's pretty variable. Okay. So you're like the, you're the, you're sort of the leading researcher on this then. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, we, we started doing research when I got here, I got here in 2015. And one of the first things we started working on was smoke taint because at that point there'd been two or three years in Washington where there had been fires. So Hmm. I, yeah, we've had, this is the fifth season that we've been doing uh, deliberate exposures where we set up hoop houses in the experimental vineyards near Prosser, not too far from where uh, Melissa works. And we deliberately smoke them. We applied apply smoke with different fuel sources or different timing just to try and understand how much smoke does it take? Does it matter what's burning? Does timing of the exposure matter? Is it worse if it's earlier in the season or later in the season? Things like that. Wow. So, so that's like to sort of to battle back kind of like to help these vineyards understand exactly what's going to happen. Like in their crops, is that correct? Like, yeah. The thresholds are, yeah. you know, where you can pick it up in the palate, like sensory, like whether it's with your, you know, smelling yeah. it or tasting it. Wow. The, Melissa, do you have like monitors in your vineyards for this kind of thing? Or, or is it sort of a eyeball? If eyeball yeah, stick, like, it's what? so new that um, there isn't really monitors or anything. Um, so not at this point, but uh, I know that WSU does have some areas or throughout Washington state where wow. they've actually had some. So we've had, you know, webinars like this year back in September um, wow. where they talked about like, this is what we're seeing. These are the spikes. These are the, you know, the points that we're seeing, like the density of the, the smoke and everything. Yeah. Yeah, so we've put sensors out in vineyards this fall yeah. just to monitor the smoke concentrations in vineyards in in eastern Washington. Yeah, so I got to think this has been a big year for smoke. I mean, it's, right? I mean, I don't know what I don't recall what Washington was like. I know California was terrible, and just in my experience, um, we were smoked out uh, probably I would say two weeks out of the summer, like different weeks. But I mean. You know, it doesn't, it's not hard to fill up our valley. It just sort of settles in here for a little while. And then you got to, you hope that a good wind comes or whatever. But, um, man, I don't know. I remember as a kid, like wildfires. I mean, I, I was, I grew up on the East Coast, so it wasn't like a popular thing to talk about. But, um, any, any insight on what's causing the fires or what's ramped up the intensity? I mean, they were, they were always there. But is it, a, I mean, I don't, I'm an uneducated, like climate change kind of person. I mean, I don't deny it, but I don't, I'm also not studied. I mean, are you looking at any of that stuff too, or? Um, we, we have not focused on that. Our, our, we've been more focused on trying to help the industry understand that, understand when there is an event, what the risks are to their vineyards and to their wineries. So trying to understand once the smoke is there, how much does it take? And based on what your vineyard experienced, how likely are you to have a problem? In terms of why it might be on the rise, or at least seeming like it's on the rise, uh, climate change may be part of it. There's probably some forest management aspects to it, at least in some areas. Um, And some of it may just be we're paying more attention to it. And things that we might not have focused on as much in the past, we pay more attention to now. So I feel like a lot of things are... You know, right. Impact. I feel like that's the case for a lot of things. I mean, we just have access to way more information now. Like you just didn't, 
these weren't things that you just immediately would think about before, right? Because and there's also just like inherent growth. Like if you look at Washington state, like the wineries that wineries and vineyards, you know, if you look at 30 years ago, it was like a hundred and that was collective like wineries and vineyards within Washington state. I think under vine, it was like no more than like 500 acres. Now, if you look at Washington state now, there's over a thousand wineries and then the collective vineyards. I mean, I don't know how much we have um, planted under vine, but I know it's in hundreds of thousands yeah. of acres. Well, yeah. And if it's a highly regional thing where you've got a fire here and a fire there, the more vineyards you have, the more likely one of those vineyards is going to be in an area where there's a fire and where there's smoke. Mm-hmm. So that, that is part of it. The increase in acreage generally. Um, and the fact that there are more people living in places that historically have fires probably is related to the, to how sensitive we are to this when it does happen. So I wonder, do you think a sommelier will ever be like, oh, this is 2015 smoke tape? Like, I mean, do you think they could pick it up in the flavors? Is it, is it something noticeable? So Melissa turned me on to this sommelier thing, and I think it's, I, it's, it's both incredible and almost ridiculous at the same time to me. I, it's fascinating that they can call these places, but I mean, I, I mean, it's like, will they be like, this is the 2016 wildfire year? I mean, you know, I don't know. Like, does it get into the wine or what? Oh, it, it, yeah, it absolutely can get into the wine. So when you have these compounds in your grapes and then ferment them, you will extract the compounds from the skins into the wines. And so it's, it's definitely going to be there. And I would expect sommeliers are going to be good tasters. I think they will be able to recognize it if it's there. Wow. But I would also expect winemakers are going to be focused on it and not let those wines get into the hands of the sommeliers. Things right. that have been affected, they will be very diligent to try and keep those from ending up in the marketplace. So I'm guessing I'm guessing that's not something you could blend out if it was that severe. Uh, you're, you're, that's got to be a lost cause, I would think, right? Um, I think there's there's a range of things, and there are certainly wines that have been affected to the point that they are a lost cause. Yeah. But there are probably others that are not as heavily affected where there may be some treatments. And that's one of the things we're working on as well is developing ways to treat these wines. Um, but there's, there are some opportunities with less affected wines to do blending, you know, mm-hmm. particularly if you're at a larger winery where you have access to wines that have not been affected. Yeah. Massive bulk wine producers will have like, you know, here's, 30,000 gallons, you know, and this is fine wine, but then I have a thousand gallons over here that was from like some special vineyard that we did. We're going to do like an exclusive, you know, something. Yeah. Well, now we can just throw it in that, you know, 30,000 gallons. Wow. Yeah. I, man, there's so many layers to this. It's, it's insane to me. <laughs> I just, it's, it's, I mean, like I said, I just always boil it back down to like, um, just, you know, random person, restaurant X, like have a glass of wine, you know, yeah. uh, they're not thinking about wildfires in California and how it could have possibly destroyed a whole year's worth of wine or, you know what I mean? That's just, it's, they're yeah. so far removed from it. Um, I think that's probably what, I don't know, fascinates me the most. I mean, you, de- you generally don't have access to folks that are like literally crushing the grapes or like studying the grapes or like paying attention to how they're planting all, you know, or, or teaching the next person who's going to become uh, right. someone making the wine. I mean, man. Well, one of the, one of the interesting things about this industry and especially about teaching to this industry oh. is 
a big chunk of the students who come into this program come into it from some other career where they somewhere along the line got hooked on wine and decided it was something they wanted to do yeah. and went back to school for it. And that's, that's definitely a case that we have a lot of, I mean, we, we certainly have students who come in through the family did this, I'm going to do it. Right. Grew up in an ag family and maybe I didn't work on wine, but I think it's interesting. So I'm going to do that. Right. But we do always have a, a reasonable number of students who did something else and decide to come back to school to be a winemaker. What's the, so like, how's the, as a, as a professor of this, like how, how's the, um, I don't know. What's like the student body. Like, is there a lot? I mean, is it growing? Is it staying steady? I mean, I just like, you don't hear about like wine school, right? Like, I mean, I never have. I mean, it, it, I was, I, that's like, Melissa, I, I mean, literally was like blown away when she's like, yeah, I went to school and I'm like, uh, I like the science of like growing grapes and wine and you know i'm like no way this isn't this can't be a thing i mean but, i mean it's it's, yeah, it's 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 been on the uptick when i started at wsu i think there were around 90 students over the four years of school who were uh, v and e or either majors or planned to be majors no yeah. and i think we're north of 120 now which is a pretty that's, big increase. In, yeah, it seems like it. That's good growth. Yeah. And that, so I'm, I'm guessing these folks spread out across the country, or is that what they hope to do? I mean. Eventually. I mean, there's a couple of colleges that have, like, these programs, you know, so UC Davis, Cornell, um, WSU. And I think you get a little bit of pocket, pocket places. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, that's right. The industry in California is still – largely populated with winemakers who went to Davis or went to okay. Cal State Fresno. Right. But then there are an increasing number of WSU grads that are working yeah. in the industry in California. So, and in Oregon. And then Oregon, is it University of Oregon or Oregon State that has, they have a fermentation program. Yeah, so they mostly focus Oregon on State. their. Yeah. Oregon State has, has a fermentation program the focus has been largely beer, but also wine. There's the Oregon Wine Research Institute okay. is, is there. Makes sense. You can't go anywhere in Oregon without coming across a microbrewery. Oh, there's, yeah. there's just loads. Oregon, Idaho, Montana. It's almost oppressive in a way. Like, it's everywhere, right? I was in Portland. Like, literally every block, you know, was some other brewery. And you're like, how, you're like it's almost too much. Like, I'm like, man, I can't, you know. To make a decision. Like, and I'm not, I'm not necessarily a beer guy anyway. So, um, I had a lot of friends go nuts, but yeah. Um, Oregon, Oregon to me would only be known for beer as I understand it and donuts and that voodoo donuts or whatever. Like, um. <laughs> you go to blue star. Those are the better donuts. You go to what? Blue star donuts are better. Oh, I don't know. I was just there for a week and they said, go to voodoo. So we did. Voodoo's like this voodoo. It's, uh, basic AF brioche or just donut. Yeah. And then they just throw a bunch of crap on top. Right. Anybody can do that. Cool names. Come up with cool names. Yeah. Okay. Cool names. But blue star, it's the dough. It's the, you know, the icing that goes on top and everything. Those are some awesome donuts. Okay. So, uh, when everything calms down, I plan on going back because there's an Epic bookstore there. And like, yeah. I, Powell books like I'm fast. I, I was like it was like three city blocks. Big. It was massive. Like oh, yeah. I went nuts in there. I want to go back. I want to take my family back. Um, 
So I'll go to Blue Star then. I'll check yeah, it out. Well, there's there's also Blue Star at the at the Portland airport. So okay, yeah. that's good to know. It's at, it's outside of security too, so you don't even have to have a ticket to go there. Oh, nice. Yes. I swear, I pick up these weird little tidbits every time we talk, Melissa, <laughs> like or whoever. <laughs> I didn't expect us to talk about donuts in Oregon. Um, yeah. I'm a big donut fan. What's that? I'm a big donut fan, so I I know where some good donuts are. Actually, I, I'm not even gonna lie. I don't even. I don't recall even actually eating a donut at Voodoo. I was just there. My my guys, I was with my Marines. They they grabbed some donuts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think I actually even ate them. <laughs> it's probably okay. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Whatever. It's more yeah. about the atmosphere than the donuts there. I would say I would say that's the uh, that's definitely the case. Um, that's what I found in all the restaurants and the breweries too. Um, not all the beers were individually distinguishable, in my opinion. <laughs> that's why I thought it was just too much. Uh, none of them really stick. <laughs> Mostly too much hops. Yeah, strong in my opinion, for sure. Um, yeah, I don't know. What uh, what's what's like the best? What's the best wine out there in your opinion? For like a novice, like for me, somebody somebody should start out. What might be something I could try? Can we do like a virtual tasting? Is that even possible? Or like virtual? Absolutely guided? possible. Yeah. Like. Yeah, we could absolutely do a virtual tasting. Yeah, you can even get them a smoke tainted wine too. Have them suffer one of those. So we're actually we're actually going to do a virtual tasting of smoke affected wines in December. That's oh, okay. Our next our next wave meeting. Mm-hmm. So we we are going to do a virtual tasting for up to five hundred people. Wow! Wow! So we, the, actually, the bottles were supposed to come today, so. Little minis, three thousand some sixty mil bottles, huh. and we'll we'll fill them with. I think there's going to be six different wines. Wow! And then we're sending the wines to um, Columbia Winery in Woodenville, some winery in Chelan, one in Walla Walla. Um, They're like pickup points. Yeah, and so people, if if you're in the Woodenville area, you're just going to go to Columbia Winery and get your tasting set and mm-hmm. go home. Chelan, you'll get it from whatever winery they've got up there, and yeah. then on the appointed afternoon, we'll do a we'll do a tasting online. Everybody will have their tasting sets, and I'll have a set, and we'll just taste through them all on a Zoom meeting like this. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's crazy. The, the downside yeah. is, from my perspective, with that many people on, I don't get to see the I don't get to see their reactions. Yeah. Oh my gosh! And they're <laughs> not good. Yeah, no, I would imagine that. I would imagine you could come across some that are going to be pretty bad, right? Like, oh, so in class, you know, so what class was that? Was that in wine chemistry or in uh, that we did a tasting? Yeah, uh, or maybe it was just in the blended learning class. We've done it in blended learning. Uh, I don't think I've done it in wine chemistry. Okay. So we, so there's a class that's like blended learning. So it's students that are, well, the, the whole thing is you're supposed to be a student that work, is working with a local winery or a local um, winemaker and you're making a project. That's where I was telling you that I made the Lemberger for, for school, which will eventually be bottled probably here in the next like two months. I just got the proof on the label and it has my name on it. That's all exciting. Nice. Um, but so that's the blended learning class. And so we always like taste wines in those classes. 
Um, it's usually a small amount of students. It's like six to like maybe 12 in there. And so in that class, like Tom pulled out some of the research wine or wine that, you know, that they made that was from the smoked tainted grapes. Mm-hmm. It's not good. Yeah, <laughs> not good wine. It will like leave a lasting, you know, sensation in yep. your mouth for quite some time. Wow. Yeah, it's it's uh, yeah, they definitely linger. We just we actually just did that tasting in the blended learning class a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. So I mean, yeah, I feel like these. I feel like grapes are just such a delicate sort of thing, and then kind of a fickle thing, right? Like I could see where they could it could just go south on you fast. Like yeah, I just feel like it's so like so such a pro like delicate process. I don't know. Uh, and and. To be fair, when we do this on a research scale, we try to make sure we put enough smoke on that we know we'll see an effect. Yeah. And so definitely got to ramp that up, the right? I, the wines I make are generally worse than anything you'll encounter in the real world. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, for for obvious reasons, right? I mean, I get it. Like you, yeah. you, you know, you need to. Yeah. I'm very much like a hands-on experience type of person. Like, like you need to you need to experience how rough this could be. You know. Yeah. Um. Cause then the next time you even get a hint of it, you're like, yep, nope. I'm going to back that off. Like, yeah, yeah. Well, there is a bit of a learning curve for it. And yeah. it's one of the things that you will overlook and overlook until you eventually see it and smell it. Right. And you'll never overlook it again. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what, to me, that was what I think the biggest takeaway from the, the sommelier thing. Like there's an education to this stuff. So, you know, anybody can go to a store and find a wine that they like, but that doesn't necessarily know mean they, they really truly know what they're actually tasting. Right. Like, um, some people, I mean, you know, to be able to even explain some of these things, um, is it's just next level stuff. I don't, I don't know. Um, there's definitely, yeah. Like when I was walked through and edu- like, and taught how to actually taste whiskey rather than just mix it with any old thing or shoot it or whatever, you're not tasting it when you're doing those things. Um, but when I was told to like, let it kind of sit in there in your jaw and let, let it kind of resonate a little bit before you swallow it. Like that's a whole nother thing. Um, most people don't do that. Uh, yeah. I don't know that. I don't know. I think wine tastings, I think is definitely a bigger thing. Um, at least in my experience, like people would tend to go do that more often. Um, so maybe they are, maybe I'm just naive to the whole thing. I have no idea, but um, yeah, I think it's just, a, it's, it's well i think at a, at a fault you know the wine industry itself or maybe just like tasting wine tastings itself has a very like pretentiousness to it that it kind of blocks a lot of people off that's so true. if you're someone that's new to wine drinking you're not someone that's going to be like oh i'm going to go do a tasting because you I, I know i felt dumb when i was in temecula and i went and did a wine tasting at one of the wineries out there and they have on there like you know uh currants and blackberry and you know, all these descriptors. And I'm like, it just, it tastes like this to me, you know, like hot, like astringent, warm, you know, like it did not have any of those flavors. It wasn't vibrant. And then once you start to kind of like taste wines as you're going, then you start to pick up on things, Mm. you know, you recognize things as well. So like, if you had like wines, like, you know, especially if you're with someone that has like, like a knowledge base or even just like any kind of foundation, you're like, okay, here, taste this okay, now, so put it in your mouth, you know, bring a little bit of air and then spit it out or, you know, just go ahead and swallow. Okay. You see how it hits in your mid palate and it's got like a fullness, like a richness to it, you know, and then you, you're like, you got like tones, tones is like a really easy way to kind of 
start someone in wine tasting, red, blue, purples, you know, if you're, you imagine those colors when you're first tasting, that's like a good way, like a good segue to start kind of building your knowledge on it. Yeah. And as, and as difficult as it can be to taste wine when you're first starting, you know, getting into distilled spirits where you've got all that extra heat from the alcohol. It's just, That's not easy either. Yeah. It can be really nope. overwhelming. Um, but the, both industries really rely on sort of the gourmet connoisseur, the high end tasters because they sort of set that halo that makes other people want to be part of it. Right. You know, it's that romance of wine or the more of high end whiskeys, aged whiskeys. That's, you know, that's part of the draw for these products is people want to be part of that romance or excitement or right. whatever it is. So even though 95% of what the industries, both industries make isn't in that category, that's what draws a lot of people in. Right. Does, does price matter as much as people might think it would? Like if you see like a, a big price tag slapped on, you know, bottle X of wine, is that really telling me anything or cause I've, I've I'm not going to lie. I've scored some cheap wines with the wife and she likes them. Right. And I, I don't know, and, but, and then I've, I've bought like, you know, slightly more, not crazy, but like, you know, a little more expensive than I had before. And she's like, yeah, I don't, I don't care for that. Like, yeah. Is that a, is it a personal thing or, I mean, do you need to look at, even bother looking at price? Like there's a lot of science that goes into that too. A lot of research where people <laughs> are drawn to the price of something and they automatically are like, Oh, I obviously I like this one more and they can have like the exact same wine. I mean, there's been research experience where experiments where it's the same wine, wine a all along, but then they have different price points, $15, $20, $80, no. $200. It's the same wine, but people automatically go to that 200. And they're like, Oh my God, I like that. That's why it's, I think it's really important when you just, when you're chasing wine, if you like it, you like it, you know, yeah. don't be afraid of that. You like that sweet white. That's okay. Yeah. You know, it's all right. You know, cause then you start to build and you start to experience other wines. I think people get into the mindset where they're like, you know, Oh, I'm going to like that one. And it's the same thing with labels too, which is really kind of mind blowing. Yeah. Uh, I, I, that's one thing I do do. One, because I've been looking for your wine forever now, Yeah. Um, but I, I look at the labels and it's sort of an interesting thing. Um, so much goes into that. I mean, and that's like a whole different discipline. That's the marketing. Oh yeah, for sure. Which, you know, we have a wine business management program at, at WS at Washington state university, you know, so wine business, you know, it's about like the front of the room, the front of the house, right? So you're a tasting room employees. Um, and that's the thing too, is like, if you look at the tasting room employees and what they're wearing and how they're talking, and then you look at people that are in production, yeah. it's essentially different. I mean, yeah, really different. yeah, I go to work every day and I'm wearing <laughs> boots and work pants and, you know, t-shirts that have wine stains all over them and my hair is up. Whereas like, if you look at the tasting room, you know, they're, they're clean and they look nice. Gotta be a little more posh, right? Like, yeah. You know, they've got, you know, their hair done and everything. Yeah. Cause it's a different, it's a different mindset, but I think it's important to realize that just because you're on the production side, anyone can make wine, but to be able to talk to someone about wine and to sell wine is more important in this industry. Yeah. But it's as a winemaker, it's also important that you understand what the what the tasting room is doing, how they're selling, and what they their, the customers want. Yeah, they're the face of the winery, right? 
everybody wants to meet the winemaker and go to winemaker dinners and things like that. But most of the time, the people they encounter first is the people in your tasting room. Right. Yeah. I'm glad. I'm glad I asked the question about price. I've been. I've always been really curious about it. And for me, on my side, like on my my favorite side, the whiskey side, like I have expensive bottles of Jack Daniels. But I'll be honest, I don't care for them any more than I do. Uh, a regular bottle of Jack. I mean, I understand the differences and I understand why they're priced so high, but it has zero effect on, right. on if I'll drink it or not. It, it It's really about how often I'll drink it. Um, oh. you know, or it'll, it'll hold some significance to me, but I don't think, um, the flavors aren't necessarily out of this world different. I mean, that could be a whiskey thing, but yeah, I've always, I just look around these wine racks sometimes when I'm at the liquor store here in Utah and I'm like, man, some of this time, sometimes it just doesn't make sense to me. Um, yeah. And then just compared to like when I see my, my wife doesn't drink wine a lot. So one would assume, well, if I just buy her one like expensive bottle of wine, she'll like it more. And that's just not the case, you know? Um, so yeah, I've always been curious about it. I don't know. I, I feel like a lot of people will gauge what they drink just solely based on how much it costs. Um, it, that's weird to me. I don't know. Well, how much it costs and for wine, what was what did Robert Parker think of it, or what did the Wine Spectator score it at? So I don't really care what it costs. If it got a ninety-two, I want to have it, or if it's got a ninety-five, I have to have it. Mm. I don't really care what it costs. What do you, what what do you, what do you talk? What do you mean? Someone scores it? Yeah, what? there are there are. I mean, there's Wine Spectator is a big wine magazine yeah. for consumers. Okay. Every issue they score dozens and dozens of wines. Robert Parker's what wine enthusiast or he was. So there are, there are a number of different magazines out there that <laughs> rate, rate wines. Yeah. And this is, that's put, that's easily accessible information. Like, Oh yeah. 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 Um, and I, and I've seen people at the wine shops with the, recent wine spectator buyer's guide looking for the wines on that list because okay. they they've got to have them. Mm -hmm. Well, wow. this yeah. is sport chasers. So it's not necessarily about like the wine itself or sometimes I don't even know what the grapes are. They're just looking for it because of this accolade that this wine just received. Mm. Yeah. How, so how, how this guy, this, these people just grab wines and rank them. It's not like a, like, does your winery take it to them and try to get a score? I'm sure people do do that, but um, um, is this in? I think, it, I think it depends on the winery. Oh, okay. uh, some of the bigger wineries, they'll come to you. Okay. So we used to see Robert Parker would come to Behringer once a year, every other year, something like that, and okay. taste through everything that was in the portfolio. Um, other other places, you send a wine to them and hope they score it. Okay. It's, it's very, you know, um, is sure. it objective, the word that I'm looking for, because you have this one person who has their own palate and their own preferences, and then they have like 10 wines and who knows how they're tasting them. You know, are they tasting them with, you know, um, a palate cleanser in between? Are they tasting them with some, like, did they just eat a spicy, you know, meal right before did they eat some rotten fruit? You know, like there's all these different variables that happen with like wine score people. It's not controlled. What's I would, that? I would imagine it could hurt your winery big time though. If you should happen to get a negative review, right? 
I'm guessing these. I'm well, guessing they have some clout. You know, I mean, obviously, yeah. if people are thumbing through magazines, I, I would imagine it. This, yeah. Well, it's interesting because, like, you know, some of these scorers can score a wine at an 88, right? And so it's not above 90, and it can get poo-pooed, right? But then you have three other people that score that same wine, and they're like 94, 93, 97, yeah. right? So then you then you have to look at it and like, okay, well, what do I like? You know, and I think that's the important thing is like, if you like it, you like it. Yeah. You know how, I mean, I'm not going to, but you know, some people, some people just that that's the way they are, you know, and that's cool. You know, they want to have a really fancy wine fridge with wines that they can drink now, wines that they'll drink with certain friends, wines that they'll drink with these friends. And then these are like, you know, my, my medals that I'm going to show people like, Oh, look at this one I have, you know? Oh, yeah. This is like your, your, your wine shelves are like status levels. Yeah. You know, or something. I don't know. I mean, if people do that, I mean, I think it's fine. It's fine. If they want to score, they want to run yeah. after you know scores and stuff like that. That's cool too. I just, it's, it's such a racket to me. I can tell you're, you're a little into this though, because you're a wine maker, right? So this matters to you. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, and if you're a marketing person for a winery, it's huge for you because right. Yeah, if it gets an eighty-eight, you're not going to make a lot of fuss about an eighty-eight. No, ninety-two. Then you're you're going to put that. You're going to have talkers. You're going to have things that go on the neck of the bottle to say, "Oh, we got a ninety-two from Wine Spectator." Mm -hmm. Wow. So you can go to the liquor store and you'll walk up and down and you'll see, "Oh, this one was a ninety-two from Wine Enthusiast. This one was a ninety-four from Wine Spectator." Yeah. Okay. So uh, it's making it. This got an eighty-eight. It's making a lot more sense to me because you'll see like the gold medal bottle mm-hmm. of whiskey or what, yeah. you know, whatever at some world whiskey, whatever. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's gotta be kind of the same idea, right? The same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, obviously like anytime you produce a product that people consume, especially like food, wine, spirits, whatever, people are going to taste them. Right. And they're going to give their opinions on them. Um, so obviously these things, these things matter, but yeah, it's, it's a shame because they, I think they hold in, in some instances, um, they hold a little more clout than they maybe should. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the wine industry is like, but it's, it's just, uh, again, I go, I always go back to how much work it takes. Yeah. Some person, you know, who maybe isn't even as good at this as maybe they claim to be could hurt, you know, all your work. Yeah. So I don't yeah. know. And it's, it's come to whiskey as well. So there yeah. are things like whiskey magazine where they sure. rate whiskeys from different regions as well. So, tends to be more about the descriptors and discussion of of the whiskey is a little more maybe a little more detailed than what you typically see on the wine side but it's it's definitely here Uh, so have you actually worked in both industries did you do any whiskeys uh, whiskey or stuff i've done done research on whiskeys okay um have been to quite a few distilleries but have not actually made whiskey so took it to the distillery. I'm guessing there's not much crossover. Is that right? Like people probably don't bounce from industry to industry. Uh, there's some, and there, there are an increasing number of wineries that also have distilling facilities okay. as part of their operation. Okay. Um, yeah, there's, there's definitely some crossover between them. Okay. Uh, maybe more crossover between the brewing industry and the whiskey right. industry because okay. if you're making whiskey you're starting with beer and so right. um it's there's probably bigger transfer from that industry 
but there are definitely winemakers who have gone into distilling as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, what what's like the what's the veteran status in this industry? Like, we're some drinkers, right? And we drink all kinds of different things. So I'm starting to realize, like, it, I know now at least three. Uh, I know I definitely know there's veterans like in the in the in the spirits industry. I, I mean, I found a, a distillery, oddly enough, right down here in Utah veteran owned and operated like that's kind of rare uh, for salt lake city like not a whole lot of distilling going on in this state but uh yeah it, i mean is this a is it are veterans making an impact in this industry i mean melissa you're making wine right i mean uh is, is it even notice i mean is it noticeable or no do people grab it i just feel like it's an industry people can get into and really love um yeah. you know i think that's important to veterans I, I, there, there have been quite a few veterans that have come through the WSU program during the time I've been here. I mean, yeah. what would it, what would crush your GI bill? I went to wine school on my GI bill. Like what, what a, yeah. But I mean, what a story to, you know what I mean? I don't know. So I did all my, I, I did all my schooling online because that's what, what I could do while I was in. Right. Um, but if I would have gotten out and had the opportunity to like go to something like wine school or whiskey school, I might've done that, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. cause it just seems to me like it makes sense. It's something you're probably already passionate about, uh, at least in one aspect. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I'm just, I'm, I'm curious cause I'm just starting to, to realize like there's quite a few vets like hanging around in this industry. Like, I don't know. Yeah, there are. And, and I, and I don't think it's something that's particularly new. I think when I first went to UC Davis to study this. I think there were three of the faculty members in the department at that time were veterans. Yeah. All, all Navy, interestingly enough. Huh. All sailors. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously, I think there's something about the sort of alcohol industry in general um, that would be attractive for veterans. I mean, it's just, it is, uh, whether, whether you drank or you didn't, like being in the military, it's a huge part of our lives, I think. Um, one way or the other, you know, I could, I could see where people would gravitate towards like, Hey man, this could be like really fun. Um, I don't know if I ever had a chance to go back to school, like something I would consider, you know, I tell my wife all the time, like, yo, I just want to go retire in Lynchburg and like kick barrels. I just want to like roll barrels down the, down the house. You know, I could do that for days and not care. Like I'd just be happy. I don't know. Yeah, uh, it's something, something I've been thinking about, especially after our first conversation, Melissa. I mean, I just was like kind of floored by this whole thing. And uh, I've been on a little journey lately. Yeah. Trying to there, learn more about it. When I was a student at Davis, there were a number of veterans in the program as well over the time I was there, including yeah. including a retired Navy ca- captain. Wow. Put in 40, 42 years, retired, and decided to come back to school and learn winemaking. Yeah. Wow. I, I just, I feel like people could also have like an ambition, like, you know, well, I've got this land in X place. Maybe I could like, you know, turn it into a vineyard kind of, you know what I mean? Like I could see that, like, or maybe I could go buy one. Like it's just not an industry that's ever going to go away. I mean, I mean, these kind of industries survive, um, depressions, recessions, you know, uh, abolition. I mean, you know, whatever they survive at all. They find ways. They always find ways. It's always relevant. Um, Yeah. That is one of the things that I looked at, you know, when I was trying to figure out what I was going to do after I retired, I was like, well, wine's always going to be there. Wine's been around for thousands of years. That's not going to change. Yeah. 
Okay, I'm gonna go into that. Is wine the wine's got to be probably the oldest? Is that is it the oldest form of alcohol? I believe so. Um, based off my education at WSU, <laughs> right? I would think it is. Um, well, I, I mean, it, it would be. It probably is, but it would be closely followed by some primitive versions of yeah. This because the water wasn't safe. Later. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm and guessing cider, cider would have been another yeah. big early mm-hmm. on as well. Yeah. If some of these things, it wouldn't be very difficult to sort of naturally occur, right? Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. Like a beer kind of thing. Um, or what aren't there like monkeys that get drunk on like fermented fruit? <laughs> like kind of, you know, sure. kind of, I mean, obviously some of these things could naturally occur. So yeah, I just, but whenever you like, if you're, if you're a history person and you read history, like they're, they're oftentimes talking about some version of wine or something like that. But mm-hmm. yeah, man. What was kind of get drunk on the pumice at school too? Huh? Yeah. So like monkeys and then like there's coyotes that go into like the pumice, like at the school, at the research center. They do. Yeah. Yeah. They get all in there and they get all messed up. Yeah. Okay. That's awesome. (laughs) That's so funny. (laughs) Oh, so I know, um, like in, in Lynchburg, it's a big thing. They take their, uh, their silage. So after, after they ferment the beer and they start this, the distillation, that silage goes to a lot of the local cows. It's, it goes into the uh, beef industry and that's another way that they prevent, you know, uh, I've listened to quite a few of the, like Jeff Arnett's the uh, master distiller there. And they've, they've done a lot to try to do as much, um, zero waste type stuff as they possibly can. So all that silage that goes to the local, local cows and pretty sure those, those cows are happy, you know? That's like that's some fermented stuff. I'm sure they're uh, they're they're happy when that stuff comes out. But that's great. That's funny that you have drunk coyotes running around. <laughs> oh man, I don't know. Uh, what Melissa, you got? So you got your own like signature thing coming out or what? Yeah. So in that same blended learning class, um, I made Lemberger. So the 2019 harvest um, made Lemberger, which is the German Austrian grape. And I did two different like fermentations, two different lots, um, about 700 liters for each and looked at different extraction methods. So that's getting the red out of the skins and into the wine. Mm. Um, And so that's all finished. And so we're blending it together and we put it all in some kegs and it's going to get sent back to WSU and then we're going to bottle it. Yeah. So it will be a, I made it with Bernie and then Cassidy, which is another girl that um, we were in the program with. Okay. So, but you did this at your winery and then uh-huh. but as a part of your, your education class credit for it, school credit, three credits for it. Yep. How much yep. are, what's your, your what's your net going to be? How much are you going to make out of this? Um, well, it's 50 cases. So 12 bottles per case. That's a lot of wine though. Yeah. So I'm excited. Tasted it yet? <laughs> Have you been able to taste it yet or no? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, we were trying to put the blend together to kind of figure out what we wanted to do because so part of the donation program is, is that I, so I made the wine, um, grapes, all that material, the yeast, you know, nutrients and everything that's all, um, basically given or donated by, uh, the winery, the winery partner. So that was Kiona. And then the school donated six barrels part of, um, basically so that way we can continue doing like the blended learning. So I actually pulled samples from those barrels because mm-hmm. we had 
it was four French oak barrels, hundred percent French oak barrels that we put Lemberger in, not the wine that I made because we didn't want to have too many different variables for the blend that we did for school, for the blended learning class. Um, and so in those barrels, we had four um, French oak barrels and then two hybrids. So the hybrids were like a 60, 40 split. So I believe it was a 60, 40, um, 60% American oak and then 40% French oak. Mm. And then that's how the barrel is made. So you're getting different components of, you know, what French is a little bit more, you know, can be like a little bit more subtle. It's not as big, aggressive, you know, tannins from the wood. Whereas like American oak, it can be really hardcore in your face, aggressive, you know, like mm. you're chewing on an oak chip. Wow. Tom, do you approve of this? Sure. Yeah. And in a, in a, in a larger winery, you might have four French barrels and six American barrels. But if, if you're only going to make barrels, then you want to have one of these hybrids. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, WSU provided the barrels, but the barrels were donated to the university by the cooperage. So, right. you know, we, it's all it's all part of how this program works. In part, it's a it's an educational experience for the students. In part, yeah. it's a fundraiser for the program. And not every not every project ends up in the in the bottle some of them you know things don't go quite as planned and yeah they don't make the cut and others are just huge successes have you been able to taste melissa's yet oh yeah we we uh so this is a rock star winner then huh yeah yeah i love that and wh- where are we where are so the so the wine you're gonna you're gonna sell it and and donate the proceeds back is that what i'm getting at here or what you're getting at so the school would sell it yeah. so it- part of like the blended learning school program. So like we have a bunch of different wines that we have. And so um, those are for sale. And so I don't know, last time I checked, um, there's a couple of like um, brick and mortar stores that you can purchase it from. You can purchase from, from the school itself. Like there's an office where you can go in and purchase. Um, and they were last I heard working on direct to consumer so that you could purchase online and it gets shipped to the consumer. Yeah, but I live in Utah, and I don't think that's no. Thing, so. It's so hard to get to Utah. Yeah, that's all right. I'm gonna have to just come out there. I think yeah. we've been talking about it. When hopefully, if this COVID stuff settles down, um, I'll be able to get out there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Come, come visit the Wine Science Center, and we'll show you around the teaching labs and facilities. And I, I just I, this whole thing is fascinating to me. Like, I don't know that it'll ever change my mind about drinking wine. Um, I th- oh. I think I'll have to I'll just have to, that's something I'm going to have to develop over time but um I just really appreciate the work that goes into it right like um uh, yeah I don't know uh yeah I just can't ever remember people sitting around drinking wine talking about who busted their butt to make it you know <laughs> like it's, it's like a, I wish, I just hope people learn more about it and who like and how many people like like it's a skill that has to be passed down from somewhere like people have to you know whether you teach it or whatever I just um, yeah. I don't know. Hopefully more uh, people will learn about it. It's also an amazing number of people that are involved from the process to the, <laughs> to the extent that consumers know anybody, it yeah. would be the winemaker or for sure winemakers. But you know, there are so many people involved in that work in the cellar, work in the vineyards, manage yeah. the vineyards, all the people on the bottling lines. There's just to get that bottle to your hands is white. Ton of labor involved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and a of, like really cool people. 
And there's a lot, but I mean, and wine still comes out like reasonably priced. I mean, it's not outrageous. It's, it's just not outrageous to go buy a bottle of wine. Um, I know, I know on the whiskey side, I know there's like a lot of tax involved. I'm not sure if it's the same on the wine side, but like, like I said, like there's, there's seriously some, there's reasonably priced killer wines out there that people can get. And it's not, you know, it's just not going to like break the bank. Like that's, I think, uh, when I, if I buy a bottle of Jack Daniels and I buy my wife a bottle of wine, I'm usually like, man, there's like, (laughs) you know, like this is wildly different. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what's fascinating to me. I think the most is like how much, how labor intensive it really is. And you can still put out, um, a fair, reasonably priced product. That's, that's what I think is pretty special about the, the whole process too. Um, what's interesting too, is that the market share for how wine sits, you know, nationally, the, the whole, I think it's like close to 70% of the market share is, is all big, huge winemakers. So the fact that, that these like 30% of these small producers, you know, they're like family owned or like even small corporation, but not part of the big, you know, big conglomerates, yeah. have like 30% of the market share and are able to like go out there and, you know, put 20,000 cases out a year and, you know, still make this like amazing product that people mm-hmm. worldwide can know about. And that's huge to me. Like, you know, that someone I know, like, for example, when my husband and I, we went with this family to Italy back in 2017 mm-hmm. and we were at this little winery in, um, just outside of Tuscany. So it's in the Umbria region and it was called, I don't remember what it was called, but it's like near the town of Montisi. Um, and there was like a little article, a magazine article that was open and it was about their winery. And I just moved it to the front and it said something about Red Mountain. I was like, what? And I'm in Italy. And I was like, wait a minute. And so I was like, oh my God. And then it had Kiona in there. You know, this, this magazine that is profiling, you know, this winery in Italy, but also had some other places worldwide. And I was like, oh my God, this is where I work. This is where I work. This winery right here in Red Mountain. And she's like, oh my God, that's so crazy. Small world, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I mean, how crazy is that? Right? Yeah. That's, yeah, I mean, uh, alcohol in general, I think is a uniting kind of thing whether it be wine, whiskey, beer, people can come together on these things, whether you're at a winery, you're at a distillery or, you know, you're on a podcast, you know, whatever. I mean, you can just like, um, yeah. I mean, when, when used like properly, I just feel like it, it's a, it's a uniter, you know? Yeah. Obviously yeah. alcohol has its downsides too, but I mean, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I just, uh, even these days we still get together with friends and dudes <laughs> Zoom grams where you have five or six people on Zoom and everybody's got whatever whiskey they've got in the house and yeah. and still getting together even though we can't. Right. Yeah, Tom likes to post on his Facebook. So this is what I'm drinking tonight. And it's <laughs> something that looks really fancy from somewhere he picked up somewhere in the world. Wow. Yeah. And what are you drinking tonight? Me? Oh, I'm just drinking crummy seltzers, to be honest, right now. <laughs> so those are kind of my daily go-tos. Um, I don't. I have family coming, so I'll I'll go to the the higher end stuff here. I'll sip a little bit. Um, but if uh if I'm usually what I drink is just a, anything you know Jack Daniels something Jack Daniels. Um, I'll, I'll do the Jack and Jack and Cokes or 
every now and again, I'll just throw it on the rocks and sip on it. It just depends on my mood. I'm a, I'm a big fan of the rye stuff. Yeah. Uh, it's got, it's got a little spicier, uh, kind of notes that seem to suit me a little better. That's my thing. Well, yeah, I don't, I don't post about it though, especially not during COVID. Cause I tend to partake a little more often than I used to. <laughs> what do you got? Are you drinking anything, Tom? I'm not because I'm still working on a presentation I'm giving tomorrow on smoke. And oh. smoke meat. So the Washington wow. Group Society is having a meeting tomorrow, and I've got to give a talk at three. Well, let me ask you. Let me ask you this though: Is it? Do you find it harder to consume wine because it's like such a huge part of your life, or does it not really? That, that can be a problem if you're doing it, making it, testing it whatever all day long it can be hard to come home and just open a open a bottle yes i I could see where that could be a a turnoff too right that's why i think i i i will typically have more like mixed drinks or hard alcohol or unique things that i'll drink at home yeah it's got to give you a little break i think right Mm -hmm. yeah 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 if you're tasting all day you don't necessarily want to come home and taste more of the same thing yeah so like if i i could honestly say like um I'll sometimes I'll just go on dry spells where I'm just like, Nope, I'm done with it. I'm done with it for a while. I don't want any of it, you know? Um, cause you can just get, you know, tired of it. I can only imagine what it'd be like if you were in the industry. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't taste as much as I did when I was working as a winemaker. Yeah. When you're tasting the way you do as a winemaker. It just, sometimes it's the last thing you want when you come home. Yeah. It's definitely been said that to make good wine, you need a lot of beer. Yeah. That's definitely something that is said in the industry. So. Okay. Yeah. Like, yeah, I get that. Totally get that. (laughs) Yeah. Ah, man. I wonder what brewers say. (laughs) Where would they turn? Got to be something with hard alcohol. And then people that are spirits, maybe it goes back to wine. Yeah, probably. I, I could see that. I mean. I don't know. I think it's a big circle. I don't know. Totally. Yeah. All right. Melissa, I'm going to find your wine at some point. You uh, know, Spiro just sent me a picture. He found my wine. Yeah, you did. Um, I think it predated you though, didn't it or no? Did yeah, you? it was a 2012 vintage of our cab. And that's actually pretty exciting because 2012 vintage was actually a really good year. Yeah. So nice and hot. It was great. And so for him finding that he's like, it was in whole foods and I don't really like to go in whole foods, you know? And I'm like, whatever it's owned by Amazon. You should go into whole foods. You get a discount, go into whole foods. Yeah. You must know where it's distributed, right? Um, yeah, I, I do. And so I, I, you know, I know we have a lot of um, places. We actually have a big hub in like Ohio. There's a lot in Chicago, Illinois and everything. There's a lot that goes out there. Um, Utah does have some, we do have some distribution out in Utah, but it's, it's usually like Riesling, late harvest Riesling. It, and they don't order a lot. I don't think it gets put out there all that much. So, so I went to, a, I went over to Wendover Mm-hmm. That's, uh, lots of Utah people go over there because when you cross the line, you can do different things um, that they're not supposed to do in Utah. But yeah, I went out there to a li- uh, liquor and wine warehouse and uh, you were on their bill, but they didn't have any. So mm. I'm finding that like you're usually sold out. <laughs> I would imagine that's a good thing. Yeah, it is a so, good thing. 
And I stopped. I didn't get to hunt for it like I, when I was in Vegas. I told you I was going to find it. I didn't yeah. get to hunt for it quite like I wanted. Uh, the one place that carries it, it was sold out. So, I mean, that's obviously a good sign. Um, mm -hmm. I was going to grab it and try it just uh, for obvious reasons. Right. Yeah. So I used, yeah. To buy, I used to buy Kiona wine when I lived in upstate New York. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. They had it. They were, they were in, I want to say they were in Wegmans in Canandaigua. Look at oh, you. Oh, wow. Look at uh, this guy bringing up like the greatest grocery store in my hometown. <laughs> <laughs> That's it awesome. It is the greatest grocery store. Wegmans was awesome. So they've, yeah, but they're even better now. Now they're like super fancy. Uh, they used to be not so much, but now they're like really nice, like top end. Yo, my sister's coming out here in a couple of days. I might actually, I'll, I'll tell her, Melissa, to stop by somewhere yeah. if she can't find them um and you can pack a bottle of wine or two on a plane yeah nope. yeah depending on where you're coming from you can actually check a case yeah oh boy <laughs> like yeah. alaska if you fly out of washington state you can check a case for free well i think it's actually if you have a mileage program they let it you do it for free okay yeah but a case is a case you know yeah i'd never think in this country it'd be hard to find any of this stuff but certain places it definitely is it's so much easier just to pack your own case. I mean, I've been to Hawaii and I've, I've taken a case there. I've been down to San Diego and we've taken cases there. You know, I, it's so much easier so that I don't have to stress about like picking out wine that I don't know if I'm going to like. I'm just like, I know I'm going to like it. It's fine. Yeah. And so I just pack my own case. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Yeah. That works. Yeah. So we, we even have wine luggage at the Wine Science Center. So we have a... <laughs> We have one of the, one of the. We have a suitcase that holds mm -hmm. twelve bottles. That's awesome. And and we bought it because we we, we go and do tastings at various yeah. places. So we'll go give a presentation in California somewhere, and bring wines like a, a set of smoke affected wines. Right. So you know I have to carry it in a case box and put, carry that all around. It's too much work. So we yeah. Got we got one of these suitcases that has the padded compartment that will yeah, hold so and you check it just like regular luggage. That's yeah. awesome. That's so cool. <laughs> I'm going to have to look into that because wherever I go, I'm always on the hunt for stuff. I mean, usually for me, it's whiskey, but. Um, well, that would actually serve a dual purpose. I mean, you could definitely do that as well. I mean, I think it's a safe way to go. Our national sales rep, she's got two of those wine luggages that she travels around in. Yeah, yeah. that's awesome. Of course, that that's got to. Of course, it has to be a thing. It's again, it's just like I learn something new every time. I mean, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna look these things up so I can spot them in the airport and then, um, hey, yeah, yeah. start hitting these people up. Like, what's up, guys? Like, what do you what do you got in the case? Like, yeah, know. where are you going? Yeah, where are you headed? Oh, well, all right. Thanks for the education. I mean, yeah. that's just so fun for me. Um, thanks for the invitation. Yeah, no, of course. And uh, Tom, thanks for your service and. Um, yeah, I just, I mean, I love, I just, uh, I love the industry and I love learning about it. And I, I just think it's cool that there's like a lot of veterans in it or it seems mm -hmm. like it, you know? So yeah, hopefully, uh, I don't know, maybe we've inspired a couple more people who are about to get out to cruise out there and go to wine school. There's a couple of, um, I, I always forget his name, but he's really quiet and he was in the same, um, year as me, but he was a Marine and, got out somewhere. He was originally from the East coast somewhere, but anyway, he got out down in California, but came up here, went to school. He's worked at Alexander Nicole. He's worked at Mercer. I think I can't remember his name, but he was always the quiet guy. 
And he was, yeah, him. Callan Paisley. Yeah, and he was infantry as well. And so, like, one day, <laughs> this is a funny story. <laughs> In Crop 201, we had um, we had to do a presentation. And so, anyway, so my group, you know, I had this one ad guy, Hayden, right? And then we had two gals in our you know group, Maddie and Kirsten. And so it was the four of us. And so we did an experiment with tomatoes. And I can't even remember what our tomato experiment was, but we grew tomatoes and it was crop 201. Anyway, so we had to give a present. Oh, we did to see how the growing effects were if you had organic um, soil and nutrients and food and then compare it to conventional, right? So that was our experiment. So... In our experiment, it was really funny because there was no difference, you know, whatever, with the tomatoes. And so when we were presenting, we were talking about or organic, you know, fertilizer that we use for the tomatoes. And so Kellen, he actually asked, he goes, was that, um, are you sure that's 100% organic? I was like, yes, it was 100% organic. Meanwhile, I knew that there, it was not 100% organic. It had the label of organic on the front of it. But when I, when we all did research on this fertilizer, it said in there, it, it says organic, but it's not truly organic by FDA standards. Right. But so a little bit later after the class, he asked me, he goes, you know, I'm really surprised. I thought that that company, they're trying to go organic, but it's only parts of it are organic. I go, oh yeah, you were totally right. But I just answered with conviction. He goes, I knew it. <laughs> you totally did the Marine thing. And you <laughs> so confidently, he goes, wow, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's not organic. Okay. Or it is hundred percent organic. Totally believe me on that presentation. Yeah. That's such a important yeah. thing to do though, isn't it? Oh, so much conviction. Yes. hundred percent organic. Next question. Yeah. I don't I don't believe anyone when they say it's a hundred percent organic, to be honest. I don't I, I'm too under I'm undereducated in that. So uh, oh yeah, that's a whole nother podcast that we could talk about. Yeah, it too. just seems like a whole nother area where there's all these weird rules, you know, like I like know. most people are okay, our world today would not be able to function as it is, or even our our medicines and our medications that we have would not be here if it wasn't for GMOs. People think it's like a Frankenstein science that like cuts, mutilates and makes, puts fish parts and tomatoes and, and you get this gilled tomato. It's not how it is. But if you're on insulin, that's GMO. Yeah. There's a lot of things out there that are GMOs. The corn, that's a genetically modified thing too. And what they forget, they think it's like something that was manipulated mechanically or engineered. That's just literally two farmers that were like, or a farmer that was like crossing and basically right. genetically modifying these. This is a big stock. This doesn't have nuts, not so much, but it's, it's, you know, it's this way. Yeah. It's what it is. You know, do you like apples? <laughs> you wouldn't be eating apples if it wasn't for, you know, thousands of years ago, them crossing those species. Yeah. Well, I think again, people are, um, well, oftentimes people are uneducated and they, are fed a certain narrative from one side or the other. And yeah. oftentimes if that's one of the first things that they learn, that's what they'll stick to. And, then, and it's okay to be uneducated, but the problem is, is you have to be open to persuasion sure. or just the education part of it. One of the biggest things that general Mattis ever told me, he goes, be open to persuasion and yeah. it doesn't have to be a bad thing. Yeah. If you're not open to new information, I mean, that's, um, it's sort of odd to me. Um, you know, when, when people can present, what's that? Just be careful if it's stated with great conviction. Right. Right. <laughs> at, least, at least be open to things, right? Like, yeah. um, obviously, I, I believe what I believe in any number of ways, right? But um, 
when presented with new information, I'm at least willing to listen. You know, yeah. I think people need to do more of that because often just in general across the board, like I think we really stifle ourselves in a lot of ways by just not um, paying attention and listening. And, right. Yeah. I got one more story before we go. Yeah, go ahead. So um, in, it was precision and accuracy. Do you remember this? Oh, yeah. Okay. So I'm not great with math, you know, and I did go into access investigation in the Marine Corps. And that was really hard for me. Where Sparrow, one of our mutual friends, um, he always talks about how it was really easy for him. He was just out getting drunk all the time. Well, that was not me. I was Corporal Whitaker and I was sitting there studying like crazy because math is not good for me. Yeah. So in our classes, um, one of the classes that Tom taught us is winery equipment and operations. And it's a lot of math involved, a lot of conversions and everything. And there's, um, like just crazy conversions. Like you've got to make a stock solution of SO2 to be able to do this, 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 all these things. Right. Well, one of the questions he had on there when we're talking about this is, you know, like wine chemistry and operations, you know, you have to have precision and accuracy. Right. So do you remember when we're on the rifle range and we're talking about precision and accuracy? Right. Yeah. So me, how I answered that question, this is the greatest thing ever. I answered that question and I started off already or drawing bullseye targets, but they look like a woman's chest. And I was like, this is not appropriate. Right. I, it just wasn't working. It, I could not get past that. So I erased it and I made body targets. Like you're on the 500 yard line. There you go. Oh yeah. <laughs> and I wrote on there precision, accuracy, precision and accuracy. And I explained it with these targets. So when Tom goes and like, so then in the class, you know, we're going over the test and everything. And he goes over that question. He goes, you know, a lot of you guys drew, you know, bullseye targets and, you know, helped explain what precision and accuracy. Some of you drew body targets. Got <laughs> <laughs> the point across. <laughs> Leave it to the brain to draw body targets on a, on a test for winery equipment operations. <laughs> <That's awesome. laughs> Oh, that's, that's good stuff. Yeah. There's another Marine in the class. Oh yeah. I mean, <laughs> that would have stuck out too. Melissa, you, you don't, you don't strike me as the type that were running around like I'm a jarhead, jarhead, jarhead kind of gal, were you? No. I mean, you couldn't tell like Bernie and I both, we've talked about that. We don't have, you know, yeah, but you I mean, there's a few, there's, I just feel like there's a few tells that Marines just can't escape and, Drawing a body target to, to, to articulate an idea would be one of them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think my ability to call people out also, like, or just to talk or to tell people, will you stop? You know, will you stop talking or. Right. Yeah. There's, there's just a presence there. For sure. Yeah. That's how you end up being in charge of your car for the field trip. That is true too. We did um, for spring break. So, like one of the last semesters you have is in this one year equipment operations. And part of the class of two is you do a week long field trip and we go down to, you know, Northern California. So we went to like Napa, Sonoma, we went to all these places for <laughs> wineries, um, tank manufacturers, cork suppliers, glass suppliers, label suppliers. We went to a distillery that was amazing. Wow, um, we, you know, we did a couple of tastings at winery and we went to like Stag's Leap, which is really cool because, you know, there's so much history with like Napa and New World Wine with Stag's Leap. That was amazing. Um, we went to Opus One, which is like this winery that's like for one bottle, it's like $300 and you just feel guilty drinking it. 
so we did all these things and yeah so every car because i think there was like what how many of the students like maybe like 25 four, four, four cars and so of course in my group they're like each car has to have one person in charge and i could just feel everyone in my group turning to look at me i'm like yes obviously i'm in charge of this car <laughs> that's awesome yeah yeah there was never any doubt who was no. in charge of for no, sure. everyone else had to have conversations. Mine was like, obviously. Yeah. yeah. The, un- the only question on my part was, do I want to split the veterans up and put one in charge of each car? Mm. Or do I want to just leave them together and leave Melissa in charge, which is what we did. <laughs> oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I guess, yeah, that works. Yeah, there was five of us in our car, and there was three of us that were veterans. There was two of myself and Bernie were the Marines, and then Ryan, who was in the Air Force. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. I mean, I think the Marines always wind up kind of, it's just natural. Oh, yeah. We just kind of are like, yep, got this. Group projects, group presentations, you know, like if you had to do a single presentation, you could always, you know, tell who was going to go first. It was going to be me or it was going to be Bernie. Yeah. Yeah. And if you were concerned about who was going to be doing all the work on the group project. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like Bernie, Melissa. That's kind of, that's the other downside is people, people can take advantage of it because yeah, you just, we don't, it's not in us to not work. Right. Yeah, Cause there's a give a shit factor. Yeah. And you're not going to leave it undone. No, no. Yeah. No, it's just, you can't, can't do it. No. All righty. Uh, All right. Well, I hope we see a lot of veterans uh, go to wine school. Yeah. I want to see more go. Um, more as well. It seems like, it just seems like a pleasant industry. I know it's hard work. Um, it just seems like you could really enjoy it and have a make make yourself a nice life, you know. Um, without, I don't know how. I'm sure it comes with its own stresses and stuff, but um, <laughs> it just could be better stress than some of the other stuff people get exposed to. I guess you know. So, what career doesn't come with stress? Right, of course, yeah. Okay, Tom, Melissa, thank you. Thank yeah. you. I enjoyed it. I I just, I love the education, and uh, yeah, I'm sure our audience. Uh, they're going to learn. So uh, we'll look to get you guys back. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. Okay. Well, I hope, uh, so I hope everything goes good though. I know the season is ending, right? Melissa and like wine should be coming soon. Yeah, or it's pretty much. If anybody's got anything out, it is probably some kind of ice wine or late harvest or something like that, but uh, everyone's pretty much pulled in. So at this point, harvest is over. Okay. So like the bulk is done and now you're cruising into the next phase, right? Yeah, slower season, just, you know, really slow season would be like February, March, April. Yeah. So, well, good, good luck to all the winemakers. What did you say, Tom? I'm sorry, I missed you. I said just keeping track of the new wines and getting them through, yeah. the, through the process. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Good luck to all the winemakers. Hopefully, they get a clean and healthy harvest without too much smoke. I mean, obviously, that's a thing, right? I mean, yeah. um, I think it's probably a problem for a lot of people. You just hope, you know, wish everybody the best. So, alrighty. Uh, thank you. Thank you for your time. I'll, uh, I'll, Melissa, you know, my drill, I'll tag it when, uh, when we put it out. Okay. Sounds good. Okay. Thank, thank you. you. All right. Thank you. You guys have a good night. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Yeah.